0: Turn your copy of the Lucan gospel to the 18th chapter. We'll begin here in a moment with the ninth verse, Luke 18, verse nine. We'll get three words today to learn a lesson from our Lord in Luke 18. The first word is pride. Look at verse nine. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. The part of the funeral where the pastor speaks kindly of you is called a eulogy. It comes from the classical Greek and it literally is translated good words. The eulogy is when someone shares good words about us. The odd thing about the Pharisees prayer is this religious man's prayer is that he does a self-eulogy. My grandmother would have said in the language of the South, the boy was tooting his own horn, so to speak. The Pharisee needs no mercy, and forgiveness seems absolutely unnecessary to him. He's already made out the exam for himself. He's graded it himself and he's posted an A plus in his own grade book, case closed. There in verse 11, do you notice all the eyes in this prayer, first person, singular pronoun. The Pharisee stood, verse 11, and was praying thus to himself. To himself, you don't pray to yourself. That's an oddity there, isn't it? I thought the whole purpose of praying was that we could speak to God. It says he's praying to himself. But actually, this is not a a bad description of this particular prayer because I don't think it ever makes it to God except for to receive God's disdain. It is the Pharisees' self-proclaimed goodness. God might be listening in, but he's not really addressing the Almighty. It was a prayer, literally, Jesus says, to himself, not a prayer to heaven. So we start with the word himself. We're not off to a good start. Then I thank God that I am not like. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Notice. He does not ask God for anything in this prayer. There's not a single petition, the creator of the universe. He doesn't need anything from God because in reality, he is quite self-sufficient. He is so good that actually he has become godless. Well, look there in verse 9. He trusted in himself. Now, did you pick up earlier there in verse nine? Verse 11 says he trusted himself, but in verse nine, and he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves. They trusted in themselves and he prays to himself or speaks to himself. They were certain that they themselves were good enough. Actually, as you begin to dissect this particular parable, It's a distorted praise song. I thank you, God, that I am so great. He made himself both the sender and the recipient of his own prayer. God is left out not to be found from beginning all the way to the end. In his prayer, he reports to God all the good things he has done and all the bad things his neighbors have done. And lucky Lord, he's on the Lord's side. He's not like those who dishonor God by violating the 10 words, the 10 commandments. He's not an evildoer. He's not an adulterer like some of the folks there in the temple. And notice verse 11, I'm glad, hey, there you go. I'm not like this one. And points to the, the tax collector. And then he begins to, In case the Lord's missed any of this action, I fast twice a week. Fasting actually was required by the book of Leviticus and Numbers only on the Day of Atonement, but this Pharisee goes way beyond the annual fast to saying, I fast two times each week. Jewish asceticism, that is trying to live piously, had become proverbial in the Greco-Roman world, so much so that Suetonius has a phrase, not even the Jews fast so scrupulously. Unlike this Pharisee, Jesus and his disciples were not known for fasting, but rather they were known for eating and celebrating, even having fellowship with those who were sinners, those of ill repute. He says, I tithe the tenth of everything I get. Now, this means not only the money he makes, not the money he gets from selling something, but if he buys something, he goes ahead and tithes the purchase price because what do you know? What the producer of the item has not paid the proper tithe and then, well, it wouldn't be clean. And so he says, I tithe not only the money that I make, but I even tithe what I buy because the other guy might not have covered it. You know, the honest truth is, we are self-centered and proud by nature. Humility is an unnatural trait. Pride is what comes with ease. And the way we accomplish our prideful selves is we compare ourselves, we can identify with this Pharisee, we compare ourselves to our neighbor. And we are harsh when we judge our neighbor. We stand like this pious, prideful Pharisee, and we proclaim that, hey, look around, Lord. I'm not as bad as the guy beside me. I'm not like this drunkard. I'm not like this gal with greed. Lord, any way you slice it, I tithe. I'm faithful to my family. I don't abuse my children. I am, well, just a little bit, a cut above my neighbor, Lord. By comparing ourselves to our fallen neighbors, and not to God's righteous requirements found in the commandments, we feel better about ourselves and who we really, really are. But God does not grade grade on a curve. God compares us to his perfect moral law. He doesn't compare you to the next guy. He compares you to the sinless savior by comparing ourselves to the low standards of our neighbors, we're like the growing child who ran into his mother and proclaimed, hey mom, I am now seven feet tall. Oh really, she said, she went back to sea and he made himself his own measure, his own yardstick, so to speak, and well, his little marks weren't quite a foot. They were about a half a foot, but he counted up seven notches and said, look here, I am seven feet tall. We measure ourselves against our fallen neighbor and we look to God and we declare, look at me, God. I am seven feet tall. When God looks at us and says, no, you're not. You're a sinner. We overestimate our own goodness. You see what's going on here in this parable and this story told by our Lord, each one of us somehow thinks we might be just a little bit better than our neighbor. If everyone in this room thinks they're a little bit better than average, then the obvious question, who is average and what is average? Studies show that nine in 10 managers, 90% of managers rate, rate themselves as better than average. Well, statistically, that can't be. You, you understand that uh, if nine out of 10 think they're better than average, the average should be right there at five, right? But nine out of 10 say they are better than average. And nine out of 10 college professors, when they fill out their self-evaluation, say they are better than their colleagues, the other professors at the university but everybody can't be better. Somebody has to be ordinary and average. Professor of psychology David Myers says that most drivers, even those who've been hospitalized by wreck caused by which they were found at fault, believe that they are better than the average driver. Regardless of age or gender or religion or economic status or ethnic background, deep down inside, we all see ourselves as this Pharisee sees himself. We are better than the next guy. Oh, we're just a cut above average, God. I know you're quite lucky that I've come to worship today. This is the way it happened. We judge others by a different standard than we judge ourselves. When it comes to judging ourselves, we know our inward motives. We know why we cut the corners, so we cut ourselves some slack and realize we didn't really mean it to come across that way, and so we give grace to ourselves because we give ourselves the benefit of every doubt. But when it comes to judging our neighbor, We use the hard standard, we use the real rule of measure and therefore we judge others harshly and censoriously and critically, denying them every benefit of the doubt as we hold them up to the perfect measure, the perfect standard. And we hold them up to the paragon of perfection. How do you see yourself compared to your neighbor? Would you be honest with yourself this morning and say maybe there's a little bit of this Pharisee inside? Thinking we're a little better than we are. An elderly minister who had survived the great Johnstown flood of 1889. He loved to regale audience with his tales about surviving that horrendous flood. He died, he went to heaven, there was a, a, an area there where a bunch of saints gathered around and each were sharing their episodes during their lifetime. He looked over at St. Peter, he was new, he didn't know the rules of when you could share and he said, hey, hey, would this be a good time for me to tell everybody that I survived the Johnstown flood in 1889? Well, you can if you want to, said Peter. But just remember old brother Noah standing over there listening to your <laughs> report. There is something in our fleshly nature that wants to talk about ourselves, how big we are, how great, how tall, how smart, how wealthy, how fast, how wise. Or we could just brag on our children and grandchildren. That's a subtle way of saying, guess where they got the great genes. I can tell you, it comes through me. In fact, we might even be tempted to boast about how humble we are. Ted Turner, CNN founder and former Atlanta Braves owner said, If only I had a little humility, I would be absolutely perfect. God says, Isaiah 64, that our great deeds are nothing but filthy rags in his eyes. Here's some signs that you might have some pride. You wanna take the test? You just measure your own test. Don't don't poke people beside you. You just think about your own. (laughs) Signs of pride. Number one, you ignore other people's opinions. Besides, if your thoughts are absolutely perfect, why do you need to listen to anybody else? You ignore other people's opinions. Number two, you never give credit to others. For you're afraid that any credit going to others might make you look smaller. And so all of life to you is a competition. If you're prideful, every bit of life is a cutthroat competition and you can never give credit, can't let anybody else win. You talk over others, number three. You talk over others. Compare the word count in this parable between the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee has a lot to say. He is verbose, loquacious. He can't stop talking. And the tax gatherer has few words. You talk over others. Number four, you might know you're prideful if you can't receive feedback. If You can't receive feedback. If you, in your perfection, have no way to improve, why would you listen to constructive criticism? Because it's gotta be wrong to start with, right? You cannot accept feedback. Number five, your relationships feel superficial to those around you. Our self-centeredness gives us a need to belittle and cut others down. I'm glad, says the Pharisee, I'm not like that sinner. Relationships are superficial because your relationships are putting people beneath your feet. Finally, number six, you worry about what other people think about you. You have a constant need for praise and validation. You worry about what other people think about you. Notice verse 11, he stood to to pray, he had to be seen. You worry about what others think about you. Signs that indeed you might have pride. Well, there's a second word, not only pride, but the word humility. Look at verse 13. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breath saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now don't imagine a moment that these two guys are going into an empty sanctuary during the week to say their prayers. It was a public time of worship. There were two hours for one might go in there, the third hour, the ninth hour, 9 a.m. or 3 p.m. So. The place, the temple, is full. It's a public time of prayer. A Jewish audience hearing this parable would assume that it was a public time for the gentleman to go in and pray. And into this gathering of proud and pious comes the tax gatherer. He belongs to a class associated with a sinner, the worst possible sinner. You see, he's no longer on the Jewish side, he's on the Roman side. He works for the Romans, the enemy, the occupational enemy, and he works for their tax system. He's collecting for the enemy and building the army of the ones who are suppressing the Jews. He's a terrible sinner by every New Testament standard. He stands, notice, at a distance. He doesn't even want to come close to the crowd. He didn't want to be down front with the people at God's altar. Perhaps he remembered Psalm 24 and he knows he neither has clean hands or a pure heart. And he doesn't belong really on God's holy hill. He's spiritually far away from God and painfully aware of the distance. He won't even come close to the fronts. He's the kind of guy I tease sometime during the week when they mention they might come to First Baptist, I'll say, you know the roof won't cave in. You just come on. The roof won't cave in. Normally one would lift one's eyes toward heaven to pray. Psalm 123, Mark 6, Mark 7, John 11, John 17. Normally one would lift one's eyes to pray, but notice the sinner the The one over there, he bows his head and won't even look to God, and he beats his breast in sorrow. That was something that men didn't do, Josephus says. That was something reserved for women at a funeral, Luke 23. He was like a woman beating his breast in grief at a funeral, and the Pharisee sees himself as the righteous one, but look there, verse 13. This man sees himself as the sinner. He sees himself as a sinner. God, be merciful to me. He doesn't say a sinner. He says the sinner. He knows who he is. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He realizes who he is. He calls on God to have mercy on him. God, somehow make provision for my sins because I can't pay for them myself. Humility is an odd thing. If you start talking about it, it leaves. If you even ask the question, am I humble, then it's not to be so. Examining your own heart, even for pride, can lead to being proud about your diligence and circumspection regarding your humility. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. Don't worry about yourself. Don't criticize yourself. For when you're always critical of yourself, you're still doing it. You're thinking about self. Don't notice how others are treating you or try to find slights in the way you're being treated. If you feel slighted all the time by the people around you, that means you have a great estimation of who you are and how you should be treated. Humility is a blessed self-forgetfulness. Humility comes by seeing yourself with gospel eyes. In the gospel, we have confidence not in ourselves, but we have confidence in the Christ. The gospel frees us from having to look at ourselves. Our sin is great and we know it. It took the crucifixion of the Christ to save us, He died. For us. In mere Christianity, Lewis writes, if we find that our, our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, then we can be sure that we're being acted upon not by God, but by the devil. Tim Keller says, I think it's fair to say that humility, which is a key differentiating mark of the Christian, is largely missing in the church today. Non-believers detecting the stench the sanctimony turn away. Well, some signs of humility. People who are humble retain deep relationships. They're more likely to help a friend than cut a friend down. In fact, a survey of 1,000 people found that humble leaders had employees who had longer tenure because they had deep relationships. Number two, not only do you have deeper relationships, number two, you think about we and not about me. You think about we and not about me. You make decisions based on what is best for the whole and not for you, not for yourself. Number three, you're listening. You listen. You ever had a conversation with somebody and the whole time you're talking, you realize they're forming their rebuttal or their next sentence? They're not listening to you, they want you to shut up so they can spew out and set you straight. Not so with a person of humility. They, They listen, they absorb like a sponge what others have to say. Number four, you show gratitude, you say thank you. Nothing is expected and everything is appreciated. In fact, if you could watch any one of us interact with a waiter or a waitress, you could tell where our pride level was in about five minutes. How do you treat the waiter or the waitress with gratitude or high expectation and haughtiness? Number five, if you're humble, you ask for help. In verse 13, the, the Pharisee asked God for absolutely nothing. In his pride, he doesn't need God's help. He's gotten there by himself, but the sinner seeks God's mercy. Are you willing to ask for help? Here's the third word. We have pride and humility. The third word is grace. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. I tell you, when Christ says that, when Jesus says that, there's a Christological claim. He tells a story, then acts like he is the Christ, and he can tell you who's right and who's wrong, who got it and who missed it. I tell you, says Jesus, Jesus claimed to know the mind of God. I'll tell you who God's going to accept, is what he's saying. Not the one you think in the story. If you're a Jew, the Pharisee is someone you held in esteem. And the tax gatherer who worked for the Romans is someone that you hated. We've heard the story so much, we see the tax gatherer is the good guy. The Jew would have heard it. Nothing like that. It's a shocking proclamation by this rabbi Jesus that the wrong guy is the right guy in the story. You see, the Pharisees said, verse 11, I'm glad I'm not like this tax gatherer. So notice what Jesus, how he turns this on his head, verse 14, he said, I tell you, this man, the sinner, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. Well, this guy is the right guy. Jesus repeats the this. How does Jesus have a right to tell us about humility? What does he know about Humility. He's a co-creator. He's equal with God. Listen to Paul in Philippians 2. This is what Jesus knows about humility. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. Both humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I'll tell you what Christ knows about humility. He was a co-creator with God the Father, and he becomes part of creation. He humbles himself. He thinks about what is best for creation and not what is best for himself. Grace is a hard concept. The murderer can have a seat at the table of God because he's humble and confesses his sins while the liar is forever separated from God because of his pride. Grace has always been the scandal of the gospel. It's not based on how good we are or what we do. It's based upon our humble, repentant spirit which allows us to quit trusting in ourselves and really trust once and for all in what Christ has done on the cross. You know, in the parable, we always have to find ourselves in one of the characters. Which character are you in the story? Do you forever judge your neighbor harshly and censoriously while you give yourself the benefit of knowing your inward intent? You sort of look, read a room and look around and think, well, I'm a little smarter than he is, a little better than she is. A little, a little, a little, or a whole lot? Or do you come to worship? Do you come to the Christ of the cross saying, I'm not even worthy to receive what you've done for me on Calvary. I can't even look at you. But somewhere in the act of the cross, will you find some mercy for even someone like me? Jesus tells a story, and then Jesus as the Christ makes the claim. I tell you, it's not the holy righteous one who's going to be redeemed. It's the one who can't even hold his head up in the sight of the holiness of God. So there you have it. Pride, humility, and grace. You can have the first one, you can have pride, but you can't have it with the third one, grace. They're all in water. You cannot be prideful and receive God's grace. That's the lesson of the story. You cannot be prideful and receive God's grace. But the second one, humility, and the third one, grace, they fit quite nicely together. Humility. And only humility leads to God's grace. Let us pray. Oh, God, for those of us who've imagined that we're better than, better than our brother, better than our sister, better than our neighbor, better than our fellow church member. Forgive us for the better thans. And may we know that our relationship with you is based upon what we, ourselves, how we stand before you. And the only way we ever receive your grace is to come humbly and say, I do not deserve the Christ to die for me. But there's some way, oh God, that someone even like me can come to the cross and be forgiven. And Jesus says, this one walks away in righteousness. Amen.